Hello, my geeselings. It's my pleasure to introduce another guest to the Robinsons podcast universe. Today, in this episode, I speak with Michael Harris, who's a mathematician at Columbia. I met Professor Harris when he gave a guest lecture in the philosophy department on computers and in mathematics and automated theorem proving. He is a philosophically minded mathematician, which isn't always the case, or isn't often the case, or isn't really ever the case. But there are some exceptions like him. And he gave such a brilliant lecture that I immediately asked him if he'd be at all interested in talking on the show. And I was so happy that he was, and he was pretty enthusiastic about it. So Professor Harris did his undergraduate at Princeton. Then he got his PhD from Harvard, and he works in number theory, which is thought of as sort of the most prestigious branch of mathematics. And we talk a little bit about why that is. Among other things that we discuss, we talk about the tragic figure of Alexander Grotendieck, uh, why mathematics is such an intrinsically human endeavor. We talk about beauty and creativity in mathematical practice and whether math, whether computers will ever replace mathematicians and the role of computers in mathematics going forward. So as you might have figured from this introduction, this is a very mathematics heavy episode, but I don't think we talk too much about supremely, I don't know, technical developments or technical work. I think pretty much anybody can follow most of the material. And it's all pretty interesting. And I'm, I imagine that most people who aren't in a philosophy department have really thought much about it. And philosophy of mathematics is a very, I mean, it's important to me, but it's not really a priority in most philosophy departments at all. So even if you are a, a philosopher, you probably don't know that much about it because they don't teach courses on it too much. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I really did. And I really hope to speak to Professor Harris more about this in the future. Enjoy. You were telling me about the tragic figure of Alexander. Alexander So. I've heard that name so many times, obviously, mm -hmm. because he's a big figure in mathematics, mm -hmm. but who was he and, and what did he do that was so important in particular? Well, I suppose I can talk, since you mentioned that I refer to him as a tragic figure. He was born in 1928, I believe. His father was a Russian anarchist, his mother was German, and uh, father was named uh, Shapiro, his mother, uh, Grotendieck. Uh, the father went to fight, I guess both the parents went to fight in the Spanish Civil War. They were revolutionaries. Uh, the father eventually died in the concentration camps. Okay. And uh, this son, Grotendieck, they were uh, eventually, he, he ended up, they both, he and his mother both ended up in, in France. And he was uh, protected along with other uh, Jewish children by a uh, at a Protestant school in the in the south of France. Uh, sometimes he had to hide in the in the woods. Uh, he became interested in mathematics. He discovered 
rediscovered some important uh, mathematical ideas on his own, and he got to uh, talking to some of the major mathematicians of the day in, uh, in and around Paris. As uh, a young person? As a, a young prodigy? person, and then he, dis he was discovered. Uh, the, the story goes that uh, Laurent Schwartz, who was one of the first Fields medalists, uh, Bourbaki member. Which is the, the most prestigious. Right, at the time, yes. Yeah. Uh, at night, it gave him a list of unsolved problems in the area, hoping that he would, he would be able to make some progress on one of them, and within a few months he had solved them all. Have you seen Goodwill <laughs> Hunting, by any chance? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, so he strikes me off the bat as a, a character somewhat like Matt Damon's then. Well, except that he did go through the established channels, and okay. then very quickly he became uh, he, he he became a uh, a uh, you know recognized professional mathematician. He had ish, issues because he was stateless and he couldn't get a job, not having a French French citizenship. And eventually, they created the institute south of Paris uh, for him and his his projects during the nineteen sixties. Uh, he and an international group of uh, leading algebraic geometers uh, together revolutionized the field. And then at the end, uh, he discovered that this institute obta was obtaining 5% of its uh, financing from uh, military sources. He protested. He was a lifetime, uh, lifelong pacifist and anti-militarist and... and uh, many respects uh, uh, exemplary activist he, re he resigned and then he gradually uh, although he didn't completely give up mathematics he uh, he moved away from mathematical life and then became gradually more and more eccentric and, and moved away from everything didn't want to talk to any of his of his uh, former friends or students all of this is and he died in obscurity in a, in a village in uh, in the Pyrenees, uh, and uh, but the importance of his work very very briefly, very very briefly, that he uh, introduced in a very systematic way uh, the notion that mathematical objects are defined less by their intrinsic properties than by their relations to other objects of the same kind, of and the he, same kind, of the same kind, and this is this uh, the the, the the technical uh, term is a category. Oh, so then I did hear his name when I was reading about Alexander Voivodsky. Uh, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, not Alexander Voivodsky, Vladimir, Vladimir Voivodsky. Right. Yes, but am I right? Is that where I would have heard his name? Well, Voivodsky was one of the many uh, mathematicians, I guess, two generations after, mm -hmm. who uh, who built on, on Grotendieck's work. And okay, he, great. Uh, one of the... His life, his 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 life projects, Grotendieck's life projects, was to develop the theory of motives, and uh, the co-motive homology, motive cohomology. Motivic homology was okay. so the motivic homology was a. Uh, I don't want to be too precise about this, but this was uh, emphasized as an interpretation of Grotendieck's uh, uh, hypothetical. Uh, theory of motives by Bellinson. So there's an intermediate generation uh, who's now at the University of Chicago, and uh, so one property, if there were if there were theory of motives, then there would be motivic cohomology, and the motivic cohomology would 
uh, motivate, that's the choice, the reason for the word, motivate the known cohomology, which are the topological properties of, of the objects of, of interest, uh, uh, which the objects of algebraic geometry solutions to systems of equations, of systems of polynomial equations. That's what algebraic geometry is about. Uh, and Vyavotsky constructed motivic cohomology and proved many of its its most important properties. That's why uh, you would have heard of him. Actually, so, I, I heard of him because of univalent foundations. Right. So yeah. that was, that was uh, yes, but he would, you would not have heard of univalent foundations if uh, Vyavotsky had not uh, previously established his his reputation right. for having uh, created his version of motivic cohomology. The reason the reason that Voivodsky came to my mind though is you you mentioned that Grotendieck was discovered, mm-hmm. and when I was reading about Voivodsky, so I just went through the PhD application mm-hmm. process and mm-hmm. it was very arduous, very time consuming, mm-hmm. and in philosophy it's all about putting together one very polished piece of writing Mm -hmm. and mine happened to be on abraham robinson Mm -hmm. Uh, but voyevodsky didn't even apply to graduate school his professor in russia just made a call to harvard and they just let him in oh i know all about this because i i was in russia at the time and i was reading a book and voyevodsky came up to me and started he was supposedly an undergraduate, although I don't know whether he was officially anything, and he started <laughs> explaining to me what was in the book uh, when I, I was on an exchange uh, uh, with the Russian... This is in 1989 uh, at the, uh, there was a, there was a inst- Mathematical Institute of the uh, Soviet Academy of Sciences, and uh, I was on a nine-month exchange. Uh, I, I attended lectures in the seminar, Arth Berlinson and the people, the people I just mentioned on motivic cohomology and and, and Vyavotsky was just one of the people in the seminar and uh, we got to know each other um, and I think we had a you know we 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 had a fairly decent uh, de- decent relation because uh, he was another tragic figure I suppose you know that he yeah he, he died, died very, very early young. and he had to overcome some. Uh, some, uh, well, I guess addictions would be the. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of to what? Well, I'm not sure how many things, but of, certainly he had a drinking problem. Okay. And he. Uh, My vice is sweet food. Uh, that's unlikely, but you know, you could, uh, you you do, <laughs> you, you never know what, what's going to yeah. happen. I, he's uh, he he was a very charismatic and yet. Uh, uh, elusive figure in that that sense like uh, like Rotendieck maybe he didn't create a school ex- although uh, univalent foundations did become a movement which he late subsequently repudiated he, he thought that uh, the people who were developing it were not faithful to his ideas in the same way that Grotendieck felt that the people who were developing uh, algebraic geometry were not following his his plan uh, that was one of his. He was he was bitter about that, and that's the subject of this two volume, these two two volume, uh, uh, just collection of writings that just came out uh, unpublishable, but published nevertheless. Hmm. That's funny. Yeah, it, it strikes me though as fascinating that of all these fields, mathematicians are still discovered, and they 
unlike I don't, I don't I don't get the sense that philosophers are really discovered so much as they are trained, mm-hmm. whereas mathematicians there is still this. I mean, there's only one Ramanujan, but mm-hmm. there's a Ramanujan like mm-hmm. phenomenon where there are people like Groton Deek or Voivodsky mm-hmm. where they're just these brilliant flashes in the pan almost. So. I think that I'm not really sure about this. So I think that Voivodsky did go to the uh, the schools, the specialized schools, and he was already recognized. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason he didn't register was that he was just not uh, interested in formalities. Uh, and uh, As a lot of these eccentric, right, brilliant right, people and, are. And uh, But Grotendieck was definitely self, self, uh, self-taught. So shifting toward mm-hmm. you, yeah. how did you end up becoming a mathematician? I'm sure it's a very long story, mm-hmm. uh, but were you always very gifted at and interested in I math? Don't, I don't think so. You know, how it's, it's, it's good that you use the word how rather than why, because I, was, I spent some time trying, thinking about the why question and realized that it's, uh, it's endless and, not, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe not even well posed. But how is, is something I can answer. It's some, I had a, a high school teacher who encouraged me uh, very, very much. She was teaching a, uh, an experimental class in vector geometry. And you know, I liked it. And he uh, is in Philadelphia. And he, he uh, encouraged me to, to apply to some summer programs. Uh, there was a famous summer program in Ohio, but my parents wouldn't let me go spend the summer uh, away from them. So I went to the one at Temple University in, in Philadelphia. And then I was also interested in, uh, in molecular biology, which was uh, uh, at, at that time very uh, very exciting, uh, discovering the the workings of uh, DNA. How uh, you know, year by year, major discoveries were were, were uh, being announced, and people were getting Nobel prizes. But when I went to uh, to Princeton as an undergraduate, I had the a double major. But very quickly, I I uh, dropped the uh, molecular biology or biochemistry, as they called it, it's because the mathematics department was just so so uh, interesting. Was it the best in the world then as well? Uh, it's hard to say. You know, there, it, it was. Uh, there, I'm sh- there, it was certainly one of the one of the best, and it continues to uh, to train uh, leaders and mm-hmm. to to uh, uh, hire people who are in uh, who were. Dominant in one field or another, but you know it's uh, there are other countries and there are other universities in the United States. There are yeah. there are there are areas in which Princeton is not not particularly strong. Mathematical logic, the one for, the philosophers like. For example, yes, yeah. Berkeley is is is, uh, is uh, bigger in mathematical logic than than uh, Princeton. Yeah. Although there was when I was there, Dana Scott. Oh, and, he was. And Simon Cochin okay. were both. And then there. Gödel probably was at the Institute for Advanced Studies. You know, Gödel was still alive then, but not uh, active, as far as I could okay. tell. So, you work on something called number theory, right? Which is thought of, at least by outsiders, as the most prestigious branch of mathematics, of which there are many. I mean. Would you say, I mean, there, there's algebra, there's geometry, mm-hmm. but there are all these sub-branches that most non-mathematicians don't realize are there. They think mathematics probably starts and ends with what they studied in high school. 
uh, trigonom, and then it gets harder and harder calculus. Mm-hmm. Um, what is number theory? That's you know that that that's also a question that uh, is could it, spend. What is the the simple Wikipedia answer, not the not the deep philosophical answer? Mm, you know, I could say where what it is historically it develops sure, sure. around certain kinds of questions involving uh, relations among whole numbers, and they could and they tend they al- tend to be algebraic relations. Uh, but then we can ask uh, questions about, for example, important uh, important uh, theme in. Uh, in number theory is the distribution of prime numbers. Yes. How many prime numbers there are in a given interval, for example. Are there infinitely many uh, pairs of twin primes, like so prime. 3, 5, or uh, 11, 13, two primes right. that differ uh, by 2? Is that that's a, uh, an unsolved problem, uh, Goldbach conjecture? It's such a simple problem. It's very, is, is it true that every even number bigger than bigger than uh, four is the sum of two prime numbers. That's a, uh, an open, uh, unsolved problem from the 18th century. That's a problem about just addition. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, of, of uh, the multiplicative relation, relation between the additive and multiplicative properties of whole numbers, which is what people learn when they learn arithmetic. Uh, the uh, So they're very simple problems that somebody who's even maybe a second or a third grader could understand, Absolutely. but that people who have been trying mm-hmm. to solve for 300 years. If I'm not, on the other hand, the most, maybe the most typical problem in number theory is finding uh, the number of solutions or characterizing the solutions to polynomial equations. And the most, uh, for, for the longest time, uh, the, 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 the most intriguing of these questions was uh, Fermat's last theorem, whether right. it's true that uh, for any uh, exponent bigger than two, there are no uh, solutions to the exponent n. There are no solutions to the equation x to the n plus y to the n equals e to the n, where x, y, and z are positive integers. And that was ultimately solved by uh, Andrew Wiles in the early 1990s. And if I'm not mistaken, he was around 10 years old maybe just just maybe a little bit more when he first heard of this question. So mm-hmm. yes, that's the kind of question that if you're if you're a curious and bright uh 10-year-old you can also you can also understand. And presumably one of the reasons that third graders even though they could understand this problem can't solve it is that even though something can be phrased so simply it requires very very heavy tools from all sorts of branches mm-hmm. of mathematics to solve it. And then a proof like Wiles uh might have taken 10 years to develop and then 10 more years of arguing over it and then finding a mistake. I think there was one mistake in his case. Well, it was okay. It was not, it was not quite like that. He, uh, okay. It, it was, there was a, a, uh, a, a path, uh, to, to solving this problem was opened up in the mid 1980s, uh, with a discovery, just a, a very, simple sort of discovery by a German mathematician uh, named Frey. Uh, it was understood, uh, interpreted by Frey, and then more precisely by uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Serre, who was described as Grotendieck's mentor, although I think they were more uh, partners than, than, than anything else, and uh, Ken Ribbett, who's a mathematician at Berkeley, that uh, if uh, Fermat's last theorem were not true, 
then there would be a contradiction to the Langlands program, which is uh, the name of the area in which I've done uh, much of my, my work, and I can maybe say something about that. And when that was, most people thought, on the one hand, this means that all of a sudden the Fermat's last theorem is not just a curiosity, it's, uh, it's uh, closely related to one of the, the, the uh, pr primary structures of modern number theory. But on the other hand, except for Wiles, very few people thought that they could use this observation to solve Fermat's last theorem, and Wiles went and, and did it, uh, ultimately uh, with the last step with, uh, in collaboration with his student Richard Taylor. Uh, uh, by establishing this very particular uh, case of the Langlands program. And the result is, well, now we know Fermat's last theorem, that's, that's done. Uh, but more importantly for uh, the continuation of number theory, uh, it provided a new approach to the Langlands program, which, is, uh, uh, which, which has been exploited by dozens of people and uh, more more proofs that would not of quest of other problems that were not specifically related to Fermat's last theorem but also uh, of central importance in number theory were uh, developed by using these these ideas uh, that Wiles said according to the uh, uh, the story he was he he developed in his attic over the course of eight, seven years and there was a mistake the first version which was uh, rectified in his uh, in his paper with uh, Taylor. So, of all of these branches of mathematics, what do you think is it that attracted you to number theory? It's, uh, is that, it the simplicity of the problems? I mean, they're so they're so stark. I mean, and they're so easily phrasable, and there's a sense that there must either be infinitely many pairs of twin primes or there aren't. Well, you know, I went to a program at, at Temple and they talked about thing, the sorts of things that one can understand when one is in a high school student. And then I went back to my high school with Mr. Grant, my former teacher, whom I continued to see and who uh, gave me independent study. And he talked about... Uh, you know that was what, what what we talked about number theory, and it's, but I was also interested in topology, which is uh, topology is the study of shapes, and, and what what makes it different from geometry then? Uh, well, the difference between topology and geometry is that geometry, uh, as as usually understood, also incorporates the notion of distance and uh, scale, and uh, topology is about the it properties. takes place on a, on a coordinate plane. Not necessarily, but yes, okay. you, there's, there, are, there are coordinates. You can, it, it's not a coordinate plane, but you can introduce coordinates and then uh, study how they, 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 uh, they affect the other aspects. You know, to, geometry is, natural, is a natural setting for, for physics because uh, what is physics? Uh, uh, what is physics concerned with the uh, measurement of relations uh, between objects in uh, in the universe, and that, uh, and the, these relations are, are being measured. That's a, that's a, that, that provides coordinates. Uh, topology uh, would we can also study uh, physics through topology. Then there would be uh, uh, some 
sort of more qualitative relations among among these uh, these objects, whatever they are. Uh, I was interested in topology, also, you know, you, you know, there, there might be a strip and the th- sorts of things that that uh, could appeal to a teenager. Now, why do they appeal to a teenager? They're, that's the why question again. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I, I I would even know how to begin to to ask that. Well, what happened was when I was in uh, my first year at Princeton, I spent the first semester learning uh, the undergraduate program, not necessarily very well, but I was studying it and I was doing all the exercises in the uh, in the undergraduate requirement required courses and I wanted to take number theory in the second semester and I had a, uh, a teacher who was uh, an instructor not, not it only stayed for a couple of years uh, named Walt Hill and he taught the number theory course in the evening and afterwards he would stay after class and answer my questions because I in some sense because I had not really prepared well uh, I studied quickly through the through the the, uh, the preliminary courses. He would answer my questions, and 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 we would talk. Uh, this went on. There was because you know in Princeton there's nothing to do. Maybe you've been there. So and I've it, never there, been there. Well, you well you you you've done as much by not going there as as you as you would it's have. It's a pretty if, campus to look at. Absolutely. I've seen I've seen a beautiful mind. Oh yeah yeah it's it's <laughs> it's it's a, it's, a, it's a nice place to be. And then uh, well once. He got to talking. I don't remember in what co- connection about the uh, the Vey conjectures. Well, the Vey conjectures were what uh, Grotendieck. There were four of them. Uh, Grotendieck uh, solved three of them, and the last one was done uh, by his student uh, Deligne in a uh, dramatic and uh, uh, unexpected, very unexpected way. Uh, but the, at, at the time, it had, the last one had not been solved, and uh, and Walt Tillich talked to me about the, the he was a number theorist, the the, uh, the main mathematicians of the time, including Grotendieck. He, he was the one who who uh, told me about what Grotendieck had done. He had not yet withdrawn from mathematics. He was on the verge of withdrawing. And uh, he told me that the vague conjectures were uh, originally formulated by André Vey after he had proved the first the first case of you know what can be considered the first case of the vacant injection they have to do with solutions of equations over finite fields so this is a solutions of congruences and the uh, theorem that Vey had proved one of his most important theorems uh, Vey being one of the leading mathematicians of the uh, 20th century uh, was counting solutions to you could say counting solutions to equations in uh, in two variables, in congruences in two variables, and the the estimate of the number of solutions, and the estimate has to do with uh, the topology of this uh, of this equation, which in a sense is uh, very hard to 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 fathom because these are finite sets, so they shouldn't have topology. But in fact, they had a way of of interpreting this, and he. Uh, what, what what struck me was that uh, he had proved this by and and he proposed that it be proved in in general uh, by using Lefschetz fixed point formula. Now Lefschetz fixed point formula you has to do with uh, transformations of topological spaces of geometric okay. objects, and you can count the number of fixed points. Let's say the that point that are that are left in the same place after you apply this transformation. 
by using topology, algebraic topology. And they said he had done something like this. This was an interpretation of what he had done in the case of these equations in, in two variables. It's a one-dimensional uh, problem. And he said, uh, hi, there should be a, a conjecture where that there should be a version of this for higher dimensional spaces or higher dimensional spaces of congruences, which is what uh, was the main project of, of Grotendieck to, to construct this theory. It was, uh, and, but when I heard that that uh, Vey had used topological methods, and Grotendieck had realized these topological methods to solve uh, equations that 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 uh, well that, that left me uh, age sixteen uh, fascinated, and that was at that point I decided, in, in part because of that uh, that the realization that number theory could could uh, involve such methods, and in part because you know, my number theory teacher was taking so much time with me, that, that led me in that direction. But even when I was a, uh, a graduate student my first year, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go into topology or to number theory, but I was leaning to number theory, and that was what I, that was what I chose. Some, as I listen to you, I mean, my mind is, I mean, I'm listening to you, but my mind is also drifting to mm. other questions that I want to ask. Please. I'm thinking about uh, I'm also thinking about philosophy and mm -hmm. what all of this revolves around or what's coming out of our conversation for me is just how much the this, the questions I have center around sociology and psychology. Yeah. And what fascinates me about that is math is thought of as the most objective science in a sense mm -hmm. and yet it's still driven by humans and their you your interests so that your personal interests you're mm -hmm. somehow drawn to number theory what these big figures like Grotendieck or Tarski or Hilbert their programs and what they push mm -hmm. and hmm. number theorists don't talk much about Tarski right right mm -hmm. right I know that Tarski is just the name that mm -hmm. comes to mm -hmm. my mind uh they probably do. They talk much about Hilbert, other than his sure, problems that he posed. Sure, sure. I mean, he's a he was a universal mathematician. So okay. And uh, but so I'm obviously interested in math right now. That's why I'm talking to you mm -hmm. about it. And for me, it started with as a kid, probably five or six. My dad writing algebra problems on pieces of paper for mm -hmm. me because. I was bugging him and he mm -hmm. wanted me to work on them and I got a huge kick out of solving them mm -hmm. or I got a huge kick out of solving those like little Mensa books. Mm -hmm. And then like you, I was, well, you seem to really get good at math in high school. Were you always good at math? Uh, well, I didn't know that I was good at, particularly at math. I was, you know, I was, you know, in elementary school, they had uh, tests and addition and subtraction multiplication they, they had city tests they were called city tests in philadelphia and i i i got uh addition subtraction and multiplication perfect but i always missed one or two in division hmm. <laughs> or speed tests yeah. so you know i wasn't didn't think i was all that all that special in math we had this game where it was called around the world mm -hmm. in second grade where everybody would be sitting down at their tables and one student would get up and he would go to the next student mm -hmm. and 
the professor would, or the teacher at that point, would hold up a multiplication flashcard. Mm -hmm. And then the first person who gave the answer correctly would move on to the next person. Mm -hmm. And I went, I was the only person to go all the way around the room. Mm -hmm. And that, it was those little experiences Mm -hmm. that made me like math so much. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how um, a good teacher or something can push you in that direction. But in other ways, my questions touch on other psychological factors. So one hunch I have about why people are particularly interested in number theory is there there's some aspect of beauty that they experience, almost mm-hmm. like art or, well, mm-hmm. probably very different from art, but there might be some similarities. And beauty is a probably not the largest topic in the philosophy of mathematics, but it's something that is certainly spoken about. And I'm curious, what makes mathematics beautiful to you, or do you even experience it in You know, terms? I, I uh, f- rarely use the word, and uh, because, you know, there's a history of use of the word beauty in mathematics, and what people who who read about mathematics often re- read uh, uh, *Mathematician's Apology* by G. H. Hardy, in which he said that beauty is 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 the I don't remember the exact quotation, but it's it's uh, mathematics must be beautiful. Otherwise, there's no place for ugly mathematics. All right, and so a lot of literary people find that to be the uh, the uh, manifesto of mathematics, the mm-hmm. the uh, the point. But you know, beauty. He and he tries to. Def- to explain what he means by beauty. And I've written, uh, I wrote a long uh, essay on on that and where the idea of mathematics as beauty oh, comes from. Perfect. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, the, this theme goes back to the uh, 19th century. But, you know, even, I imagine it goes back to the Greeks. Or well, actually, not so much. Well, not so it? much. Not so much. Okay. The, the, uh, You, you can read it into yeah, into what what, what uh, uh, Aristotle or Plato wrote about about mathematics, but that's maybe a, a forcing uh, forcing the reading. the The whole idea that art was about beauty only goes back to the uh, to the eighteenth century systematically. Right. Although, of course, again, you also you know you you you, you uh, I imagine you, its its central role was probably religious. For example, that, for example, for yeah. example, well, no, it's, it has or ma- ma- many, many different things were written about about art. But the uh, why why do mathematicians say uh, beauty is the objective? Because what what what's the alternative? Why are people doing it? Well, it might be useful, uh, and uh, and Hardy talks about whether uh, mathematics is useful. But that he's he it, most he, he particularly said that number theory was not useful, and he said. Uh, he said that mathematics is what math, some, something is useful in, in the sciences if it contributes to uh, to uh, there's there's a uh, exploitation and, uh, and oppression things like that. So, that, oh, so okay. he, yeah, I don't remember the exact. Is but, that accurate though? No, I mean, I mean that's in, not, he was he was a, a, a pacifist. No, is it and, accurate to say, in a more colloquial understanding of the word useful, that number theory 
isn't useful, that it doesn't have applications? Well, uh, uh, that's so that's what he claimed, and then it turns out that uh, number theory, you know, and since to get through through uh, uh, cryptography, number theory is is, is that the, as as I wrote, is the uh, central is is the uh, which I which I remembered, but I but I wrote, <laughs> but it is the. Uh, Uh, I had a had a nice nice expression. Can can you stop this, or maybe I can? You don't go ahead. Keep uh, keep. You can look it up. Yeah, let me let me see what I wrote. Yeah, we don't want to we don't want to miss out on any nice expressions. This is the point where I narrate this mm -hmm. beautiful right. day we have by Columbia. Right. Oh, you found it. Yeah. Right. I I wrote that it's the. Uh, because you can't order things online, you can't pay for things online without using the crypto systems based on number theory. That is the bedrock of modern shopping, and that's, <laughs> that is and, good. And that's the uh, way. Oh, so so number theory underlies the blockchain. Oh, before no, but the blockchain. Yeah, in fact, the blockchain also. But this goes. This is before blockchain. This the is, mining. Uh, before no, it goes back before that. You, you in order, you have to encrypt your uh, so your your credit card information, and that's all number theory. That's that uses so it, so that the this doesn't get transmitted through the uh, internet uh, unencrypted. You, it has to, but at the other end, it has to be decrypted. You use uh, public key cryptography, and that was invented in the uh, over mid nineteen well. Late 1960s, early 1970s, the methods that are, are currently used. So yes, uh, crypt cryptography. It's is uh, when when you say that the application is uh, to allowing Amazon to drive uh, uh, small shops and bookstores out of business. Is that so? Then, then the, there what, is some what, oppression. There. Then what you mean by useful is uh, is is a matter of contention. Uh, but anyway, so the, you, what I. It, what I discuss in my book is that you know the three, the three. Uh, and what's your book just, called? It's called Mathematics Without Apologies. Oh, uh, so it's it's a well that was a that was a targeted at Hardy. It's a hit. No, piece. you know that was you know it took several over several months. The the uh, editors were coming up with uh, different possible titles, each one worse than the, than the last. What was your What was your hope? Did you? Well, have a I had I had you know I had. Uh, I was having a hard time finding. This was the, uh, I, I, you know, I, I preferred the the subtitle, but the subtitle maybe is is uh, is more uh, portrait of a problematic vocation. Yeah, but but you know, I was I was not so happy with the with the title, but because precisely because it's not specifically uh, this one chapter that's that that talks about Hardy, but the rest of it uh, not particularly. But the, the there's a uh, a chapter. Which I said, not merely good, true, and beautiful. Good being like useful, and what is the what what is the justification for mathematics? And I try to find other uh, other ways to uh, explain why mathematics is is justified, or the spending one's life uh, devoted to devoting one's life to mathematics is justified. Um, what kind of activity it is, and I try to turn the question around. I'd say, who are the people? We're asking the mathematicians to justify 
of their work and their existence as opposed to doing something, you know, like essential work, of course. Right, as a philosopher, well, as a one-day philosopher, I get that often as well. I had that, uh, I talk about how philosophers uh, address similar questions. And there was, it was not particularly convincing. Uh, You weren't able to convince yourself? No, 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 I found, you know, I found, you know, this was in Britain, of course, where where, where, uh, you really have to... Crispin Wright, uh, yes. about the improving the lives of ordinary people. That's what he writes it is? Yeah, right. Uh, I don't think many people are reading academic philosophy. Right. No, but he had to write this for for whatever, uh, uh, you know, uh, evaluation of... of they, they actually closed philosophy departments in Britain uh, at, at one point when I was writing this. And I, I said that the, you know... The, uh, my my argument, which only convinces those who, who want to be convinced, is that it's uh, the fact that people are doing things because they enjoy it should should not require uh, justification. I mean, this is, this calls into right. question. That's music. That's uh, making movies. That's all sorts of things. Right. So then, uh, you know, and under the uh, uh, current. Uh, organization of society who makes the decisions and who is asking uh who is asking uh, others to justify uh what they do this is uh uh it's not uh, i don't know whether in in a genuinely democratic uh, organization of society uh the question about doing mathematics so why does mathematics would be would be fra- phrased in the same way uh there is uh, but of course somebody somebody has to give has to uh, pay for other people mm-hmm. to right. be mathematicians. Maybe it should only be done in private universities. <laughs> well, I've I've also written about these uh, these the, these contradictions, and uh, it, it's not it's not an it, there's not a simple answer because mm-hmm. the people who who contribute money to support mathematics have their own agendas. Like uh, I was, uh, I started something when I was in Paris. I started something called the Paris-London Number Theory Seminar, which met once a year in each of the, the two capitals because I had some extra grant money and wanted to find something useful to do with it. And this was in 2005, I think, it started. Uh, so it continued and continues today. It's become bigger. And when I went the last time, which was, I think, in 2016, I was sitting next to uh, my colleague, Kevin Buzzer, who we may find maybe be discussing later and he asked me are do you wonder who's paying for this because it had expanded uh, beyond my very very modest initial budget i said yes this was at lunch and he said and he said well it's uh, something called the uh uh the uh, uh <laughs> yeah i mean i i'm forgetting this is it at at bristol the uh well, ultimately, it was uh, GCHQ, which is the British equivalent of the NSA. Oh, in- right. interesting. The Heilbronn Institute. Okay. The Heilbronn Institute is, an, is a, a, an institute at the University of, uh, of Bristol. And it's, a, it's quite a good, good, uh, good institute. And is that because something you were doing was leading back to cryptography? No, no. It's that somebody in Britain managed to convince the uh, Heilbronn Institute to, to fund these annual meetings and that meant that it was getting money from GCHQ in the United States NSA was also sponsoring some uh, uh, mathematics some 
some research in pure mathematics uh, until the uh, Snowden revelations when it, uh, it, it, it turned out that uh, they had not uh, managed to purchase goodwill on the part of mathematicians. And so this, this, uh, 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 this grant program seems to have been uh, uh, ended right after that. So we have strayed a little bit from yes. my question about right. beauty. Beauty, yes, we haven't talked about beauty at all. Yes, no. because, because the <laughs> beauty is so, if it's not, so they, it's impossible to separate, I think, uh, talking about mathematics or the, the justification of mathematics for the sake of beauty. Well, that's, from, a, I mean, an from, interesting uh, from, remark from, in its own right. From uh, the alternatives, which were uh, truth, which is the one that interests philosophers, that uh, when, when, when you talked about, when you talked about objectivity, you know what makes how mathematics seems objective. I've turned that around. What what other than mathematics uh, would uh, philosophers consider as 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 a uh, uh, touchstone of objectivity? As a, it's going to depend on the philosopher that you're asking, doesn't it? Uh, but I would just like to say, well, for me, the world is the only objective thing. What's out there? The, the world is all that is the case. Yes, and which Wittgenstein, is, right? Right, which is uh, or the total totality of facts, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Are you a big Wittgenstein fan? Well, I, I did read Wittgenstein when I was in graduate school a lot, and somehow I absorbed a lot, even without realizing it. Sometimes I, I, I find myself uh, saying something, or with a you know, uh, writing a sentence, and it turns out that it's it's been uh, uh, stolen <laughs> from my reading of Wittgenstein, and that, but. Yeah, you know, Wittgenstein is also very frustrating because he doesn't actually answer any of the questions. He just right. He I'm, just... I'm one of the people who's frustrated by mm -hmm. him. Well, that's good. I mean, you should be frustrated. If you if you are not, then you're probably misreading. Yeah, you're reading too much too much into him. But it's but the, as far as the so the the process of uh, asking questions is my uh, well you you were at the, my talk in philosophy that the that if the purpose of of uh, of philosophy is to uh, the primary activity of philosophy is to show why the, all the other philosophers were wrong. And to disparage right, them. Right. Well, not necessarily to disparage them. <laughs> There's you know, a lot you, of disparaging <laughs> involved. All right. Well, that's, Maybe that's, not in print. That's just, well, that's just you know, what you call human nature. Where you, yeah. you disagree with people, and then you, then you uh, take some pleasure, pleasure in, in that. But the, uh, but the fact that you should point out the mistakes of... Uh, but it is, I, I mean, fascinating. I'm using the word fascinating a lot, but it's a... And striking, but it's a distri striking distinction between philosophy and mathematics mm -hmm. that philosophical programs are always failing on the left and right, whereas mathematics seems to be a much more steady uh, progression. And that is also distinct from the natural sciences, but something mm -hmm. that Heim, Heim Gaifman, my mm -hmm. professor in philosophy, likes to say is that there's no phlogiston in mathematics. No, there are dead ends, but there, there are, are dead ends, but mm -hmm. there aren't points where we have to throw out everything that's been done for two hundred years or something like that and start over. Mm -hmm. Although, but but there are uh, revolutions in in mathematics in which the uh, previous uh, perspectives uh, are no longer taught. No longer this Grotendieck, uh, Grotendieck. Uh, uh, led a kind of revolution in algebraic geometry, and so people who want to do algebraic geometry have to learn his his point of view. Although there are uh, mm. there are even even newer points of view, but that they, they, they basically derive from that. Let me get back to beauty, though. 
so we've so so in in, in my book i explain why uh truth is 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 a problematic justification for mathematics and when and you it, say that truth when you speak of truth as a justification of mathematics you mean that uh mathematics might be justified by our learning about number structures and just what there is well you know the if if people who don't know what mathematicians actually do can say that mathematics uh this this is uh oh, this is the mathematics mathematicians are establishing objective true statements about what well what it's about what it's about whatever they're about or whether right. they're about anything at all whether there are infinitely many twin pairs of primes there there are uh, right there's a well, that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of question that uh, um, um, philosophers of mathematics, the most sensitive philosophers of mathematics, ask: what, what can you say about the existence of something? Whether when you you know you don't have a proof, uh, the there the the uh, no, they, Put what, put some large number of zeros after a one, and then say, "What is the, the 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 this pair of twin primes at this at this stage is?" Uh, you can't make a statement if you don't know that there are that many pairs of twin primes, for example. But what is the nature of the of that uh, of, of that uh, philosophical status of of, of such statements? Uh, but anyway, I deal with truth. I deal with. Uh, Utility as as a as as a, as a relative, a relative to some some uh, uh, priorities that are not necessarily universally shared, and that leaves beauty. And so mathematicians say, but I argue that when mathematicians say something beautiful, that means that it gives them pleasure. Okay. And so, well, pleasure uh, since Plato has been uh, has been uh, disparaged as a reason for doing anything. Uh, so can't really say it's for the sake of pleasure and of course it can be it can be abused the uh as, as a justification but that's what people mean as far as i can tell when they say, say beauty and i give a little bit of the history of that uh in, in my book so when i that's why i avoid using uh beauty uh as a justification but you know when when i write letters or of recommendation for people's uh, work you know, that's that's how you can tell what are the real true values of of uh, mathematicians intuition it's uh you read what they write about people who they you know the job recommendation letters say this person deserves a job or this paper deserves to be published because such and such well there are uh i, I think sociologists uh really ought to have access to these private correspondence of uh, journals and of uh, mathematics departments to try to under, try to sort through uh, and classify the the this use, the use of language, find commonalities in different uh, different countries, different languages, see what really is the motivation for mathematicians. And there are there are you know, but usually the motivation is within uh, it's within a, the given discipline. Say such a such a person has uh, established. A uh, new method which allows uh, for a different perspective on the standard problems, the classic problems of the discipline. Well, that sounds um, self-referential. And so another 
a way of looking at, at mathematics is as a uh, there I, I rely on Alastair MacIntyre as a uh, tradition-oriented uh, practice. I think that's what he calls it, tradition-oriented practice. Mathematics. Mathematics is a tradition. Well, it is a something that people do, in other words. People will do it, and they do it in an organized way, and they do it following, uh, uh, you know, conforming to certain traditions. So that, that sounds like a conservative, uh, a conservative justification for mathematics. And I guess uh, MacIntyre has sometimes been... Uh, Characterized as a conservative philosopher, uh, also is he's, he's appreciated, I think, by some some Catholic theologians. Uh, maybe that was one of his his, uh, his his starting points. But the uh, but it can't be denied. You know, mathematics as a discipline preserve itself pre- preserves its nature. This is maybe a Spinoza uh, uh, a perspective on on mathematics. It is something that's done and it tends to persist in its uh in its uh uh essence which is a word that i, I that doesn't mean anything but you know whatever whatever philosophers like it right some philosophers like it and some philosophers hate it freshman philosophy students like it uh-huh well you know i guess i guess uh no it's, it has a history essence and I think Spinoza maybe have has the most uh the most rigorous to the extent that it's it's gonna be rigorous, the most rigorous uh, uh approach to that. So is one of the major points though that you're that you're making that beauty is hard to pin down but it kind of amounts to pleasure. When you act when you uh ask people what they mean by beauty in the in most cases, uh they say you know, they, they can, you can give characteristics. You can say, you know, Simplicity. some symmetry, uh, a naturalness, uh, inevitability. This is, uh, 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 this is, this is, Hardy has a, has a, a, a three properties. That's uh, also, also in, in here. Three it's, properties. Three that properties are that he, right, beauty. Right. It's, uh, it's. Uh, Um, yeah, but yeah, well, I'm trying to figure out the. No, no, you can. No, I'll yeah. continue narrating the beauty of the day. We've got some lofty clouds <laughs> and blue skies. Right. Um, hard to define. Uh, beauty may be very hard to define, uh, and. Uh, but he expects his readers to know what he means by art and to agree that beauty is one of its criteria. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't think that everybody would agree with that. There's a lot of ugly mm. art. Absolutely. I say that that just the, around the time that uh, that uh, uh, Hardy was writing, uh, beauty was being uh, exercised a- exercised from the yeah you know, by the art theorists of, of art, including people from. Uh, from Hardy's circle. In fact, when the, was he writing? He was writing. Well, he was active. Uh, up, he was. He wrote Mathematician's Apology around 1940. He was active okay. before that. And, the, and why did he get? You know, the the other question: Where does does he get his, his notion of beauty? Well, he was a member, one of the Cambridge Apostles, and the Cambridge Apostles were were strongly influenced by G. E. Moore, who who placed aesthetics as the highest highest goal. Hmm. Uh, let me let me see if I can find. Uh, uh, let's see. Mortel. 
Right. Unexpectedness, inevitability, and economy. Uh, those are the three. Those are his three. Can you repeat them? Unexpectedness, inevitability, and economy. Hmm. Uh, so I said naturalness. And economy? Economy. Uh, I see that. And then uh, Mordell, who was uh, Hardy's successor at Cambridge in the, in the, in the chair that he held, called, added simplicity of enunciation. And I said, with that, it's only a slight exaggeration to say that the theorizing of mathematical beauty on internal structural grounds comes to an end. That's only a slight exaggeration. There is also a, uh, a school of, of, of thought, neuro, uh, neuropsychology, that says that uh, uh, the beauty of mathematics is related to other forms of beauty and that it stimulates the, uh, a, certain, a certain part of the brain. And hmm. Michael Atiyah was a an important uh, British mathematician, actually worked with this guy, Samir Zaki. Uh, do I have that? Uh, I like the simplicity of enunciation. Right. That, that sort of goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the attraction of number theory mm -hmm. being there are problems that everybody can understand, and we can understand mm -hmm. what it would mean to solve them, mm -hmm. and yet they're so challenging to mm -hmm. solve. Well, that comes down to, back to uh, what I hesitate to call human nature, because the... the uh, what I was uh, thinking uh, today uh, is that before you talk about what, you know, it, what, one of the problems in talking about what makes mathematics uh, valuable is that there's no, uh, there's no generally uh, agreed uh, definition of mathematics. There are attempts to define mathematics. Uh, and one, there are ways to define mathematics that leave people out completely so that machines can uh, in the in some future uh, not not necessarily too distant future mathematics will be exclusively the uh, province of machines because they'll be faster and therefore better than than human beings and that's a, a vision that a lot of my my colleagues share some, is that this is an inevitability or there are a lot of people who some people consider it desirable some people don't but uh, many people, many uh, very distinguished mathematicians, are, are saying this. Others say this. This makes no sense. And I'm, I'm in the, I my my uh, perspective. I'm, I'm in the this makes no sense category. I'm trying. I'm trying to uh, to uh, explain why it makes no sense, but it's not so. I don't know if I heard it from you or if I came of this by my own accord. Uh, either are possible, and you'll let me know afterward. But. It seems entirely possible that computers could do mathematics that humans couldn't because there are mm. limitations to what we mm. can compute. But the role or the point, one of the points of doing mathematics isn't just to compile some compendium of Pythagorean theorems mm -hmm. and just a, a body of equations and facts, but it's the mathematician's drive to understand mm -hmm. one and just store having a computer run and come up with, with this compendium doesn't involve any understanding on the mathematician's part, mm -hmm. but it's also the thrill of solving puzzles mm -hmm. and 
that's, I mean, what got me into mathematics mm-hmm. was solving those puzzles that mm-hmm. my dad gave me mm-hmm. or in the Mensa books mm-hmm. or the flashcards. And mm-hmm. that's the role of the mathematician that won't go away. What I, I've defined, or not defined, but characterized mathematics as a way of being human. Well, that, that leaves out machines. It's, it's, yeah, one, of, that's, it's one of the ways, like it's one of the ways that uh, humanity has, uh, has uh, developed for being human, and and I also would define it not as as as, be, be, as a, a relation among human beings before it is a body of of work or before it is a body of 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 uh, of, of statements. That's but, so exemplary of the gulf, though, between the mathematician and the non-mathematician. In that, for you, mathematics is about being human, but for the non-mathematician who looks at it from the outside mathematics is the the province of computers and their calculators and they have no interest in doing math because the calculator will do it for them well you, you know also this has to be uh placed in, in a broader context of the uh of uh economic context development of uh of uh industry and, and investment you know there's no uh no return there's no return uh, on practice that leads to human enjoyment unless it can be it can be monetized. So, and how do you monetize it? Well, you have to capture uh, the market, and so that's why it seems to me that's of course that's what uh, Silicon Valley is very very good at doing. That's why they think uh, mathematics is the sort of thing that can be uh, can be monetized like other. Uh, aspects of human relations, and you know it's possible that uh, friendship, for example, that you think that's one of the wh- wh- one of the characteristic uh, uh, behaviors of human beings. Well, friendship, if it can be uh, captured by uh, Facebook, so that you can only be friends through the Facebook platform. You know that that that's uh, well, then then they they they, they uh, extract a profit from that. So there's a, a drive to extract profit from all human activities, and why not mathematics as well? When you say friendship, though, what comes to my mind is I came in here, and, well, when I arrived at your office, you were deep in a phone call with a friend of yours right. who I'm assuming was in a different country. In a different country, And yes. doing mathematics. And right. that's mm-hmm. part of the humanity that mathematics brings. It, it right. creates relationships uh, you're bas- he's basically your hunting companion from 20,000 years ago, except now you mm-hmm. guys are solving math problems instead of herding mm-hmm. uh, cattle or hunting cattle or something. Right. Well, this is, you know, the, the, it's perfectly legitimate uh, to argue, if you're a philosopher, that humanity is, has, a, has an expiration date. Uh, and human activities have an expiration date. There are certain uh, examples of uh, industries that no longer uh, that no longer interest many people. The uh, 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 Jaron Lanier talks about buggy whips. Apparently, there's a, this is a, uh, a lot of people in California talk about how it's natural for for uh, for Silicon Valley to replace uh, existing industries because you know things become obsolete like buggy whips, and you know mathematics could be one of those. But it's, if you think of mathematics as uh, a relation among human beings, then then that's a uh, uh, then see that's a very limiting way of of uh, imagining the future of mathematics. 
and I've been trying, that's why I have this Substack newsletter, to, uh, to develop arguments that will uh, discourage my colleagues. I, I don't hold out much hope for a lot of uh, computer scientists because computer scientists have some vested interest in, in taking over mathematics, and I certainly don't hold out much hope for, for uh, converting, uh, uh, converting uh, Silicon Valley engineers. But I would like my mathematical colleagues to uh, stop thinking about the replacement of human beings by machines, say, arguing that, you know, uh, uh, AlphaGo or, or uh, Deep, Deep Blue or whatever is, is a model for the future of mathematics. Because, you know, it's an analogy. But it's an analogy only if you think of mathematics as uh, uh, oriented to a certain kind of goal as opposed to a way of being human. And, uh, yeah, that's a, that's, this way of being human is a very powerful way of, of putting it. You know, there are a lot different people do different things, right? That's what, you know, that's what makes life interesting. So in line with this way of being human, well, first, we're at an hour and three minutes, mm -hmm. and I want to be conscious of your time. Mm -hmm. Do you have time for one more sure, sort of sure, push sure. of inquiry? Mm -hmm. So... In line with mathematics as a way of being human, what role, and this is another huge question, uh, what role does creativity play for you in mathematics? Again, another big question, mm -hmm. but creativity, spontaneity, those I think are huge aspects of being human. That's part of the whole puzzle solving. If we if the puzzles came with instructions and there was no creativity, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be doing mathematics. It would be fodder for the computers. But there's something about the thought process, the the dreaming about mathematics mm -hmm. that makes it so mm, ingratiating her. I don't know if that's the right. That's I don't think no. that's the right word. Um, but Grat gratifying, gratifying, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know that's a, 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 that question is impossible for me to answer because I'm not sure I have any uh, meaningful sense of creativity. If I were to try to define so you it, don't. if I were to try to define it objectively, is the uh, what happens between uh, two states where something is in the second state and it isn't in the first state well uh, then that would that would narrow it down but what what what's involved in that you know the uh i've had experiences in which i've didn't know something it, and then a few minutes later i did and uh you know, there's a is that psychology is there any other way to to uh approach that uh than psychology is there a way you know you can develop mathematical models you can I suppose there are philosophers of, of creativity, though I haven't read uh, anything especially convincing about creativity. Um, let me say, uh, some, let me answer a different question that you didn't sure. ask. I, something I realized, you know, I sometimes find myself rereading passages from my book or other things that I've written with pleasure because I think, you know, this is a really clever sentence or... You know, or, 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 uh, I know the feeling. I'm and, more often horrified by what I read. But. Well, it happens sometimes, too. It happens quite often. But then, on the other hand, I do not find myself rereading my mathematical papers uh, 
for the same, I sometimes reread them to try to figure out what I was thinking at the time or, or how, how such, a, such, such a calculation goes. But I do not uh, reread them for, for aesthetic uh, purposes, for, for, for contemplation or, uh, you know, once something is done, you know, there's a period of elation if I feel that I've solved a problem that was, uh, I was wondering about for a long time or a problem that other people were wondering about. A realization that, that these things, this this uh, connection, this relation of ideas works, uh, but then it's uh, it's uh, so then has, has to go in another has to continue has to go beyond that because every every uh, mathematical document is partial. It's uh, it's a stage in this in this uh, process. What does it say on my on my uh, Door, uh, mathematics is a is a long conversation. It was uh, my uh, my my thesis advisor likes to say that uh, Barry Mazur. That was uh, a conference I helped to organize for his 80th birthday. Hmm. And uh, mathematics is a long conversation. A long conversation. What is the point of a long conversation? What is the what is the goal? What is the you know you you can you know if you have if your long conversation is on is on Twitter, then, you know, maybe Twitter is getting some, some money out of it. Uh, but if you have a long conversation, it's not, it's, it's not, uh, the, the goal is not defined objectively. There's no need to, to objectify it. So creativity uh, is not, so I, I have written about my experience, you know, my, the, the, because my, my, I was mystified that I found myself uh, beginning to think about and finding a part of a solution to a problem that was not one of my problems it was a problem on the on the, on the uh, edge of my awareness uh, that's how my f first substantial contribution to the language program which happened you know in the middle of my career after i'd been doing other things for a while and uh i i, I wrote about it in this book and it's uh, you know I eventually decided that it was uh an expression uh, of, uh, or, or, or the working out of some adolescent jealousy. I was jealous of some of my, uh, or of my uh, colleagues, of my predecessors. And I was thinking unconsciously about the ideas that they had uh, developed, you know, that I hadn't. And then I somehow, uh, in, the, in the dream, literally in a dream I saw I saw a connection that I hadn't that was the next and last question I was mm -hmm. going to ask is this is just a matter of personal curiosity mm -hmm. but how or even do dreams play any role in your mathematical practice this was a, a, a dramatic uh, a dramatic incident because it changed the direction of my work and in, in, and I and it led within a few years to a solution of of an uh, important problem in the language program, and it came literally through a dream that I had after attending a lecture. You know, I made, in, in the dream I put things together. That happened only once. Okay. I've also had dreams that uh, which mathematicians gave me advice. You know, real people I knew appeared to me in my dreams and told me uh, I should think to do things in such and such a way. And uh, you know, but that never led anywhere. Uh, there is the famous. Uh, example that I wrote up in uh, 
in uh, of of Thomas and in Trobo. Thomas yeah. had his uh, his friend uh, give him uh, the missing piece of uh, her program that he gave that was wrong. But he could see that how 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 to fix it. But right, so in this dream, his friend gave him the wrong information, but it contributed immediately to his finding the actual solution. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think it's not it's not so common. You know, people do. There there is the uh, there are s- several important texts in, on uh, the role of the unconscious in in mathematical discovery. Oh, really? There's uh, so the two. Uh, maybe most often quoted are uh, are uh, about this Poincaré. Poincaré uh, discovered the relation between uh, uh, his geometry, non-Euclidean geometry, and and well, what are called now automorphic functions. Uh, one kind of automorphic function. He just discovered this while climbing onto the omnibus. Yeah, I read this in high school. And uh, so I, I learned this, you know, relatively. And he wrote about it, and he said, and his 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 uh, analysis was that the unconscious is is you know you're thinking about a problem. Uh, your unconscious continues to think about it, and then it finds the solution, and it informs you of it. So you, so a lot of the work is is being done unconsciously, and then there is a more developed uh, version of this in uh, Adam Maros' the Psychology of Mathematical Invention. Uh, more examples, but uh, you know, my the reason I wrote up my experience was that uh, uh, it was a unlike the example that Poincaré gave or, or the benzene ring or some some other famous examples. This was something I had not. Who conscious. was the benzene ring? Because I think I read Kekulé, that. Kekulé, Kekulé. Okay, and was uh, that he was like sleeping in front of a fire or something like that? He saw this these different uh, atoms dancing around in a circle in but a that, fire. But, yeah, but yeah. that but then it then there's some question as to whether he made this up after after the fact. Nice story to make up. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me. Well, this, thank you. This. It was it was I haven't maybe I'm not going to watch it because it's been painless so far and if I watch it that may not be. <laughs> that, that, that may Great. Be. I'm glad to hear it. Well, hopefully maybe um once the well, I guess if it wasn't painless there's nothing that you have to forget. So maybe in a year or so uh, once you've forgotten about this one, we can do it again. So. All right. Well, maybe you know, maybe in a year I'll look at it and then I'll, Great. I'll shudder. All right. Thanks. I have recorded this about ten times because I'm just so bad at asking for help but if you could like subscribe comment on whatever medium you're consuming this nascent fledgling podcast on that would be so helpful because the best thing for helping me grow this podcast at this point is making it at least appear that i have an audience so thank you for listening and thank you for supporting me